people of the revolution, and welcome to another episode of the Great Futures podcast, where we discuss topics related to environmental justice, people's visions for what life could look like in a just world, and how we will achieve those visions. I'm your host, Gracelyn McClure, an undergraduate student studying environmental geosciences and sustainability studies at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I am also a climate justice advocate and an organizer with Students for a Democratic Society. In this episode, we will be discussing a lot of different topics, um, including voting, technology, and science communication with Dr. Heidi Roop. Enjoy. All right, um, welcome. So if you could just quickly introduce yourself, including your name, pronouns if you're comfortable sharing, what you do, and then anything else about yourself that you'd like to share. Sure, great. My name is Heidi Roop. I am uh, an assistant professor of climate science at the University of Minnesota. I'm also the state's extension specialist for climate change. Uh, and I focus broadly on climate impacts research and helping communities prepare for those impacts. Um, so I develop programs and data and technical services that help um, all different people from farmers and decision makers to better understand and to incorporate climate information in their risk management strategies. Great. What did um, I miss? I was supposed to say, something. oh, my pronouns, she and her. Great. Uh, so then um, what sort of got you into this work? Um, was there a particular moment that activated you that you'd like to share um, or more of like a growth over time. However you got into it, I'd love to hear your story. Yeah, that's a great question. So the the simple um, abbreviated version is that I had a um, really amazing professor uh, in my undergraduate career. My first year, uh, I took an intro to geology class and that kind of changed everything for me. Um, I had intended to go to university to, to, get, to get a degree in international relations and Spanish, and I wanted to go into the foreign service and become a diplomat in South America. I am not that, um, but <laughs> so I ended up pursuing a career in, in geology and more specifically climate change research um, and kind of throughout my path uh, both in school and in my professional life. I used to work at the United States Geological Survey as a scientist. Um, I sort of always had this tension of thinking the work we were doing was really important. We were understanding and working to better understand Earth's complex climate system, um, but that information didn't seem to ever be being used in the places where it really mattered. And so I struggled in trying to understand how to become a more effective communicator to try to understand the relationship between science and society and what those interactions look like. Um, and now have sort of landed in this position where I get to think about the role of science and effective science communication and climate change communication um, and sort of how to, um, you know, sort of our the ability to prepare for climate change and our, our responding to climate impacts will be something we will be doing um, forever. It's something we've been doing. We're just, you know, modifying and needing to adapt to a different climate normal, if you will. Um, and so I, yeah, I think that I get to, to sort of go along on this adventure and really think about what's needed and try to be like nimble and adaptive in my own work to try to 
meet the needs that are are starting to surface in communities um, so we can so we can use science to be responsive to to real world kind of here and now needs um, rather than being driven by say the scientific question that's the most interesting um, that isn't of course to diminish the need for and the value of basic research so science for the sake of science or science that could someday informed decisions. I think we need both. Um, but I really am excited about having a career where I'm doing what we call kind of applied climate science, um, where the questions and the needs are being defined by the communities that they're intended to serve and the decisions they're intended to inform. So that's what I do. That's really kind of cool. how I got there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I am an environmental geosciences major. Um, and so like, that's something I've thought about a lot is like, I want science to be accessible and mm -hmm. I don't want to be just in academia and just sort of stuck in that bubble. So that's really cool that you're, you're expanding that. So on, on science communication, um, which is an issue that I'm interested in. And I think a lot of people who are going into the science uh, into STEM right now are also interested in um, with the discourse about climate change being so politicized and being so polarized. Um, so I just wanted to speak a little bit more to what science communication is, what that looks like, um, et cetera. So in an episode of the podcast Ologies by Allie Ward, Chris Morgan, an ursinologist or someone who studies bears, says about science communication. Part of my work is trying to relay these stories to others, though, because a lot of scientists don't do it very much. Thank God for people like you, Allie Ward, that are getting science out there to huge audiences. We need more of it, don't we? Otherwise, science can sit on shelves and collect dust in PhD dissertations, and scientists aren't always the people that want to be out there on the front line getting attention and raising issues. They're often happier in the field or in a lab. It's so important, isn't it? So the bottom line is that science is often inaccessible to the people who actually need it. An example of an effort to include the community in the scientific process not just in sharing the end product, but throughout the entirety, is popular epidemiology. Um, popular epidemiology seeks to address the disproportionate environmental health disorders, diseases, problems in BIPOC communities. It is defined by Novotny in popular epidemiology and the struggle for community health in the environmental justice movement as Popular epidemiology is an empowering approach to health that places squarely in the foreground the knowledge that community residents, labor unionists, and others have of the health and environmental problems resident to their communities and workplaces. The work of popular epidemiology is largely based on the assumption that broad-based political organizing is fundamental to solving the health problems of the workplace, community, and environment. The inseparability of physiological, psychological, and social effects of environmental hazards is foremost in the popular epidemiology of community activists in the environmental justice movement. Some key parts of science communication are collaboration with a diverse network, utilizing storytelling in meaningful ways, personalizing the information so that it resonates with folks, 
listening to the public slash the people that you are communicating with. It's a two-way street um, and being authentic to yourself. There's no need for the filters scientists often use in lab settings when doing research and in, in professional settings that end up being barriers in communication with the general public. Is there anyone um, or anything that inspires you um, either in your work or in your everyday life? Anyone or anything? Um, yeah, I guess it's, um, it's both of those things. And I guess without naming individuals, I would say it's the individuals who are within often really complex and perceived as sort of highly bureaucratic or slow to move or slow to change organizations who somehow have the insight and the wisdom and the persistence to change their institutions for the better. And in that way, in the context of that I'm talking about, it's about including climate change information where it's critical. Um, as we think about how housing policy, as we think about infrastructure and water resources management, uh, people thinking about how toxic waste sites are handled and designed. Um, and I have had, I've been inspired by so many people whose job it isn't to think about climate change, but who have decided it is their job because it is imperative for them to achieve the work that they set out to do. And so I, I'm just in awe of and so grateful for those people because that's, um, it's the progress we need, that kind of embeddedness of climate science and climate change information and a willingness and a motivation to act are so key. Um, but selfishly, it's those individuals that help me keep going. <laughs> They're kind of, when people ask me like, what do I find, how do I find hope or how do I keep doing this work? Um, they're the reason that I have hope and I'm able to keep doing this work. So that's sort of the selfish <laughs> reason, I guess they're inspiring, but um, they make it so that I can mentally and emotionally continue to do this work because I get to see those success stories and those champions um, show up in some of the most unexpected places. Absolutely. Um, so now we're going to get sort of into the um more hard-hitting questions of the movement. Um, so how would you say that you envision a just future? And you can answer this question in a variety of ways. I've had some people answer it sort of from a, here's how we will go about envisioning or, and then other people answer like, here's what I see as being a just future. So you can interpret the question however you want. Okay. Um... That's a great question. I'm going to riff on. I just had the opportunity to listen to Heather Tomey. She's a um, activist and expert in climate and a whole bunch of other things. And I'm not giving her enough credit, so I should look it up, look her up. But um, she works at the EPA and um, is just an incredible champion for change. And um, she was talking about the role, you know, environmental justice being climate justice, right? And then sort of the, the kind of imperative that so many of the things that we need for a just future are, at least if we're thinking about this in the context of like environmental justice, um, it's other systems change that have to go lock and step and in tandem with any type of climate action or climate policy. Um, and we have to stop limiting people's abilities to vote. <laughs> Right, we have to stop having housing discrimination. Um, 
right? The way we get to a just future is by passing a critical and a very critical and uncomfortable eye on the systems that are in place that perpetuate all of the inequities in society. And of course, climate change will come to bear on housing, um, on people's resilience, their abilities to bounce back. Um, we know that social cohesion, so the extent to which a community communicates and has strong, robust relationships is a key indicator of their ability to bounce back from climate stressors like climate hazards, right? That's well documented. Um, and of course, housing and the ways in which we build and design and support communities directly determine the extent to which they have social cohesion or access to the resources that build in community resilience. Um, we cannot, we need systems change, right? And that requires governments and governments in our country are come into play through in theory a democracy. But if we prohibit people from getting to the polls, who in fact often are the most impacted by the changes that are being made by policymakers, um, for the for the worse, um, are often trying intentionally being um, discriminated against in terms of their access to being able to cast a vote. Um, and so, there's all sorts of statistics to support that, um, and the fact that you know a lot of the discriminatory policies are limiting the people who, who are the biggest champions for say climate justice and environmental justice from actually being able to cast their vote in favor of the people who will be helping us really define and develop and achieve a just transition. So um, for me, one of those big things right now, and maybe I'm biased by what's happening in the media at right at this moment and what, have, what our president said yesterday around legislation that's being considered and passed in some places in some states um, that are really trying to limit people's access to the polls. They're really trying to fundamentally change our democracy. And we can't have a just transition if we don't have a democracy. And right now we, we don't, people can't vote. It's not a democracy. So anyway, I probably shouldn't be so strong in my language, but <laughs> no, <laughs> um, you got me on a good day, I guess, where I'm not being so tight-lipped. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, a just transition environment, it requires us to really critically think about all the systems at play. And because climate change is an everywhere and an everything problem, we have to think about all of the systems that are currently inequitable and it's most of them. And I don't know, I can't intimately comment because I happen to be a highly privileged white, white woman, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so being wanting to be clear about that, right? I, I have the privilege of, of saying all of that, um, but not necessarily being living experience. Um. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you being a little less tight lipped. <laughs> um, much more exciting. So just to provide a little bit of context on what Dr. Heidi Roop is talking about here. Um, on March 25th, Georgia passed a law that made it harder for citizens of the state to vote. In order to vote absentee, you need to supply a driver's license or state ID. But if you don't have that, you need some other documentation. And the ballot drop boxes will be limited in their locations. Not only that, but the Republican-led Georgia state legislature will now be allowed to suspend election officials under a formal review of conduct. They have used this to get rid of people like Raffensperger, who refused to, quote-unquote, find more Republican ballots back in November when he was demanded to do so by Donald Trump. 
Additionally, under the law, people are prohibited from passing out food, water, or other essentials to people waiting in line to vote. And we remember how long the lines were in the November 2020 uh, presidential election. President Joe Biden called the law outrageous, un-American, and Jim Crow in the 21st century. And that is a direct quote. Um, so that's just important to keep in mind. On top of that, um, this has been, and voter suppression has been an ongoing issue in the United States. Um, and part of that is fueled, fueled by the fossil fuel industry. Didn't mean for that. That was an unintended pun. My bad. The fossil fuel industry is funding campaigns for voter suppression. It is just one of their many different tactics, including but not limited to financing politicians, deflecting responsibility onto the consumer, um, and being part of groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC. ALEC praises fossil fuels as being critical infrastructure and they push for anti-civil rights policies that especially target BIPOC folks to prevent them from voting because we know that when BIPOC um, show up to the polls, Republicans aren't gonna win. <laughs> um, and they feel threatened by that. So Republicans backed by fossil fuel companies. And that's not to say there aren't Democrats that um, are backed by fossil fuel companies, but it is uh, important to note that there is voter suppression going on and it it is targeted at BIPOC individuals because it is a threat to status quo. And there's overwhelming support for climate action if only people were able to get to the polls to express that to politicians, which is the sentiment that Dr. Heidi Roop expresses a bit. So you spoke to this um, a little bit in the last question, but uh, what steps do we need to take to get to the just future? Like how will we transition um, there? Um. Well, I think that's a multi-layered answer. <laughs> How do we get there, right? It's all of these things, right? It's thinking about systems change. It's thinking about urgent and scalable change. Um, it's thinking about individuals' role in helping us push for and achieve that collective action. And of course, as I just said, there are policies and institutions and systems in place that limit some people's abilities to participate in that way. Um, and quite frankly, we need, we need policies that enable institutions and individuals and organizations that want to say be climate ready. <laughs> For example, I think a lot about adaptation, um, less about mitigation, both are critical. Um, they're critical to balancing the sort of equation of climate, right? We have to prevent further warming at the same time we prepare for the changes we've already committed to. Like it's too late for some things we've committed to change and so now how we feel climate depends on balancing both of those things, both the prevention and the preparation. Um, so selfishly, uh, you know, from my disciplinary expertise, we need to make more and better and deeper <laughs> investments in resiliency 
right? In this preparation piece, it's, it's too late. We can no longer just put all of our eggs in the mitigation basket. Um, of course, we have some massive systems change we have to achieve to reach our, the policy targets set forth in the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, achieving or bending the curve to not overshoot the two target, but to reach the one and a half degrees target is requires fundamental change across pretty much every sector of the economy in every country in the world. Um, and with every day and month and year that passes, um, it's gonna be harder and harder to achieve that and the more drastic and dramatic um, our, the changes are gonna to have to be. And so I think it's imperative that we start to shift into a proactive stance rather than a reactive stance when it comes to both mitigation and adaptation. Um, and I guess the thing that I'd like to say in light of also what was going on in the media and other books and things is that um, this idea that technology can save us um, is fraught. I see uh, there is, it's clear in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that all of the scenarios that we've put forth for how we achieve that one and a half degree C target or overshoot and then bend the curve back down, every single one of them requires steep near-term reductions in emissions. They also all have some combination of carbon capture and storage or sequestration. Um, and it's just important to note that there are equity issues associated with that. Um, there are some land use challenges associated with that. And there is not yet technology proven at scale that can sequester the amount of carbon that's required to reach net zero by 2050. And so I see technology again as an integral part of this, but not the sole and only solution. And there's no question that we have to emit less and consume less because technology is really for the last mile of the challenge. It's the getting the last bit out of the atmosphere that's gonna help us have a more stable climate um, rather than the thing that we wait on to help us get there when it's 2050 and we've exceeded the two degree C mark and we've lost all of our coral reefs and we have billions of more people exposed every year to heat waves. Um, the costs are far too large to rely on technology to save us. Um, that's great. Uh, in, in this class that I'm doing this project for, um, we have talked about technology a lot um, and we've discussed sort of what we think the role it should play is. And um, so we've read some pieces um, and I have also found that really concerning where it's just like technology will solve everything. And it's like, yeah. Look where technology right, got us. Exactly. And yeah, it can, it can play some role, but we have to be careful about the implications of it and um there are especially geoengineering that really terrifies yeah. me yep like there's no question we have to develop those technologies and we have to deploy them at a scale there's just it's no question and that's widely agreed upon in the scientific community that's why it's integrated into the intergovernmental panel on climate changes scenarios um, for greenhouse gas reductions but they also note it's not proven at scale yet and as the clock ticks, like we have at current emissions where we have less than a decade left before we exceed that one and a half degree C target. Um, so, you know, I, we can't keep waiting. We have to start acting. And again, that action has to have, there's no one fuel type. There's no one sector that has to bear the responsibility, but we all have to 
start pitching in. And of course, there's a proportional response because there's a proportional contribution to the problem. But um, yeah, waiting for tech to save us is just it's not the only it's not the only way. It's it's a it's part of a robust portfolio of options and you know, deployed solutions. It's not, it's not the thing we should, I would not put all my eggs in that basket. Let's just say that with Easter yeah. on its way. <laughs> I'll put a egg or two. Um. <laughs> so in talking about technology, um, Dr. Heidi Root mentions geoengineering, and I just wanted to give a quick definition of that. Um, it is defined by Britannica as the large-scale manipulation of a specific process central to controlling Earth's climate for the purpose of obtaining a specific benefit. Some examples of geoengineering are cloud whitening, which would increase the proportion of sunlight that is reflected by essentially creating more cloud coverage. And another example is stratospheric sulfur injection, where if we add sulfur to the stratosphere, which is a layer of the atmosphere that um, where the ozone layer is um, and it's above the troposphere. So if we add sulfur to the stratosphere, there would be an increased scattering of light, um, of sunlight that comes in. So that's just a brief about geoengineering and you can read more. Um, but in an article from the Harvard Business Review, the authors warn even if energy innovations have a lot of potential, they might not be deployable until it's too late. There is a period of time between conception of an idea and the widespread use of said invention, as there is a long process that needs to be taken that includes testing, testing and more testing, obtaining a patent, finding the funds. There are other steps in there, but those are just some of the key ones. And time is not the only danger of technology, but there is also the concern that meddling in such ways will present more consequences in the future that we fail to predict, especially if we rush the process to get tech out as the climate crisis worsens because we are relying on it. Um, so as I've, as I've been doing this, um, this next question I've realized uh, sort of mostly applies to students that I've been talking to. So we can we can skip over it. Um, just like I said with the last question, we can skip over it um, if you want. Uh, but the question is, how has the pandemic changed your perspective, um, if at all? Um, I think, so there's a lot to unpack there and its relationship to climate, but I think the thing that I would say is that it's not the way that we, it's, I would not advocate that a pandemic be the way that we achieve like transformative change, right? Because this was a highly inequitable how we've changed and who's had the privilege of say not being exposed to this virus um, and who's lost our life. Um, but that said, I guess the biggest take home for me is that where there's a will, there's a way. And importantly, where there's political will, there's a way. Um, I heard an amazing report on NPR by, um, they interviewed uh, one of the leading experts on um, malaria and the development of the vac of a vaccine for malaria, which there is not yet one, um, or there are 
shapes and forms of one, but its efficacy is not to the point where we need it. Um, of course, a, a huge portion of the global population is exposed to malaria, but there's been, you know, it's been a disease that's been around with us for 10,000 years or more. Um, you know, it's been part of the human condition and, and yet less than a billion dollars, this, this individual, this expert estimated that less than a billion dollars um, over the last say, decade or more has been put into the development of a vaccine for malaria. But in less than a year, we are able to deploy as a global society over four, like around $40 billion for the development of a vaccine. And I think it just goes to show you like when we can see it and when, I mean, that's, there's obviously a lot to unpack there too, but um, when there's political will and when people decide it's a priority, we can do profound things, like things we didn't think were possible. We can develop new technologies, we can save lives, we can transform how we work across every sector and every industry. Um, so yeah, for me, it's been more that transformative change is possible and that political will is powerful. That's great. That was uh, well put, so thank you. Um, and then last question I have for you um, is, how would you suggest people get involved in climate justice? I think work? in any way that you're able, we all have different abilities to contribute. And I think, um, yeah, I think there's lots of different ways, you know, engaging with community, um, plugging into groups that already exist. In many ways, you don't have to look very far to see, to find people with common ground or common values who are having dialogue and, and doing this work and supporting them in whatever way you can, whether that's time, um, whether that's cheering them on and supporting and amplifying their messages, whether that's financial, I think all of those things are really critical. Um, and then just sort of one easy everyday action, I think that people can take, um, of course, you know, literacy around the topic, thinking critically about what information you share on social media um, and taking a hard look at whether you are existing in an echo chamber. Um, it's really important for making sure that we're really thinking broadly about the implications and our understanding of the, these complex topics. Um, and then importantly, you know, so I, I think a lot about the communication of, of climate science and um, there, the Yale climate change opinion maps are really powerful. And um, this might be something you've already heard and it's something that's increasingly being said by scientists and others or an activist, but um, while a majority of Americans agree that global warming is happening and many agree that it will harm future generations, only around 40% think that global warming will have, has a personal, will connect, will impact them personally. And of course, as I've just described, climate change is everywhere. It's in all the, it's embedded in all of the systems we rely on every day. So everyone should be able to develop a personal connection to this issue. And part of the problem there is that only around 25% of Americans hear about climate change in the news at least once a week. And only around 35% talk about climate change on occasion with their family and friends. And so if there's one simple thing you can do, it is to have a conversation about climate change with someone you care about, someone that you love or someone that you meet on the street or someone that you're trying to build a connection with establish your shared values around this topic, because if we don't hear about it and we don't talk about it, how could we ever expect for there to be the political will 
or the resources or for companies to change or change their behaviors. There's just no way because we say it's an important topic, but we're not willing to have those conversations with the people around us. And so I would just, I think everyone can have a conversation. Um, so I encourage people to tell their climate stories and really figure out why they care about this topic. And as we think about envisioning this future, part of that can be sharing your vision, right? For a just more equitable place where people and the planet thrive, despite the fact that the climate is going to change. And so what does that look like? I encourage people to tell their climate story. What's their vision for the future and how will climate change come to bear on that story? Great. I had, I didn't know. I, I've seen the Yale uh, um, study on mm -hmm. uh, the climate maps, whatever it's called, whatever you said. Um, but I, I had no idea that so mm -hmm. few people talked about it. Yeah. And that so few people see it in the news because it's just, it's like, I think about it every day. I probably talk about it every day. Mm -hmm. So like that's, yeah, media that's matters just did a me. really, I just, yeah. I was shocked by, um, they did an analysis of the coverage of climate change in TV broadcasts. So corporate TV broadcasts. So, um, yeah, that doesn't count like PBS. This is like corporate news and climate change accounted for 0.4% of total coverage of new corporate TV news in 2020. 0.4, not 4, 0.4% of total coverage was dedicated to climate change stories. Right. And so like, it's so it's, wow. that is so illustrative of the challenge, right? We need transformative systems change. We need political will. We need people to have a personal connection to climate, but where are they hearing about it outside of this echo chamber of people like you and I, it sounds like who are climate engaged and climate interested Right. The other thing the Yale polls show is that around 73% of Americans, when we think about, you know, climate is this polarized topic. Yes, it is. There's all these challenges with communicating about climate change. But when you look at the American population on this spectrum of like the climate concerned activists, the person who's screaming, like, this is urgent, we need to act now. And the denier people who say this is a hoax perpetuated by scientists to get rich, which I don't know, you can look up my salary, but at any rate, um, right? There's the spectrum, right, <laughs> of people. Um, and the, the majority of Americans sit in the middle, it's around 73% are concerned or cautious about the topic and they don't know who to trust and they don't know where to get reliable information that's not biased by those extremes, right? And the deniers represent less than one, less than one in 10 of Americans fall in that extreme denier. It's, it's an increasingly small minority of people, but they get a disproportionate amount of the attention and the concern, right? So many people think I have to talk to that 1%. I have to target that, that one individual who's happens to maybe be very loud and very strategic and has well-tuned talking points that they repeat ad nauseum until we believe it, right? Versus maybe the less effective communicators who just scream like, this is a problem that's not really fair, right? I put myself in that category, so it's more of a self-critique, um, right? But we tend to be thinking that we're battling these highly strategic, well-funded, minority of people when really who we need to be talking to is that 73% in the middle who just want to be 
invited into a non-confrontational conversation about a topic and understand what it means for them, right? Because we're sitting in this highly polarized and tense environment, there seems to be very little opportunity for real opportunities for dialogue where we're listening and establishing common ground and providing people with a safe, judgment-free place to ask questions because it's a thorny, complex topic. It's not necessarily clear that you should understand the physics of greenhouse gases and temperature, right? I may think, think that's super simple um, in the same way that an economist might think that like, I don't know, cryptocurrency is super easy to understand when I have no clue. I'm like, I don't know what that, what? What's Bitcoin? What? Right. And so I think we make all these assumptions and we have overlooked the opportunity of that, the conversation that sits in the middle, that safe place to have conversations and that, right, people sit in this, it's just a polarized thing and it's not a safe place to engage or ask a question because I'll be torn apart on social media or I'll be, you know, cancel culture or whatever. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity there. And one way we overcome that is by it not being about the science. It's not about the facts. It's about what we stand to lose and how we shape the future we all want. That's a much easier place to find common ground, right? Healthy water, healthy air for our kids to breathe. You know, pick your favorite hobby. If it's an outdoor recreation, right? There's, that's why there are groups like Save Our Winters or Protect Our Winters, right? With snowboarders and Olympians who are winter sport, you know, Olympians, they're coming together to rally around the fact that this topic means something for the thing they care about most and they are an in-group and they can advocate for the things they love together. And so people are coming together from all walks of life because, you know, there's hunters and fishermen are, you know, are all concerned about this, increasingly concerned about this topic because it will impact their ability to do what they love. And so we should be having those conversations not the ones that like, this is a hoax and you know, the world is on fire. It's like, okay, the world might be on fire, but like, what are we gonna do? And how will that impact you? Like, that's, that's the direction we need to go. And that's a work in progress for me because I, I live in the data. And so I wanna scream at the top of my lungs, like, hurry up. <laughs> um, but it's an ineffective tactic. Great, thank you so much. I just want to give a big thank you to um, Dr. Heidi Roop for sharing your experiences, thoughts, time, and work with me for this project. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Great Futures Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. As always, I encourage you to look into some of the topics covered on your own, check out some local groups doing great environmental justice work, and get involved in what interests you. Listening to this podcast is a great starting point into the movement and larger conversations, which is why I give you so many resources to look into. Disclaimer, all of my asides are based on my research and do not necessarily reflect that of the person I interviewed. All of my sources can be found in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.